Chapter 36 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls, by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 36 the age of Louis the Fourteenth. In the year 1643, the year after the great civil war broke out in England, a little French prince, only four years old, became king of France. A story is told that as his father lay dying, the child had said to him, I am Louis the Fourteenth, and the father answered, Not yet. The little Louis the Fourteenth grew up to be a very remarkable king, but he was always thinking about himself, just as he had done when he was only four years old and standing beside his dying father. All the time that Louis was growing up, Cardinal Mazarin was doing his best to go on with the work of Cardinal Richelieu and make France the greatest country in Europe. They did their work so well that, by the time King Louis the Fourteenth was old enough to rule France himself, France was very great indeed, so great that at last it seemed that the thing which people were always trying to prevent had happened, and that the balance of power in Europe was upset. In the end, nearly all the countries of Europe were joined together to fight France, Louis the Fourteenth was not really a clever man. He was very vain and self-willed, yet even his great idea of his own importance and his determination to make other people feel it did help to make France great. Under Louis, French trade was made much better, and for the first time France had a good navy, which became for a short time as great as either the english or the dutch navies louis looked on himself as the centre of france the sun from which everything drew its brightness and even its life he took the sun as his emblem and was often called le roi soleil although louis had not a great mind he had very fine manners and everyone felt that he was a great king. He could never have done as much for France as the great Cardinals Richelieu and Mazarin had done. It was they who gave France its great time. There were great writers in France because Richelieu and Mazarin had made France great. And just as in other countries, France's great time in history was also her great time in literature. But it was Louis the Fourteenth who brought all the greatest men in France to his court, and many men from other countries too, so that the French court became the greatest court in Europe. French manners and French art became the fashion of the time. Other people did their best to imitate them, so that when we speak of the age of Louis the Fourteenth, we do not mean a time in the history of France only but a time when the french led the way in everything and the other countries followed at the court of louis the fourteenth there were the two great playwriters moliere who wrote comedies 
that is, plays which end happily, and Racine, who wrote great tragedies, that is, plays which end in great sorrow. There was the philosopher Pascal, and there was La Fontaine, who wrote fables, in which animals are made to speak and do things like men and women. All French children still love to read the fables of La Fontaine. Louis the Fourteenth built for himself the wonderful palace of Versailles, eleven miles out of Paris. He made the French people pay him a great deal of money so that he could build it. Visitors to Paris can still see it today, with its great rooms and galleries covered with gilt and with great mirrors all along the walls of some rooms, while others have pictures painted on the walls by the artists of the time. The great park of Versailles was filled with marble statues and wonderful fountains which are now turned on on Sundays so that the people who come out from Paris may see how beautiful they are. For the palace of Versailles is now used as a sort of museum and belongs to the people, for there are no longer kings in France. Louis the Fourteenth was not very friendly with the Pope, he wanted the king to have much more power over the church in france than other catholic kings in other countries and he had many quarrels with the pope through this yet louis was a very strict catholic so much so that he could not bear to think of the huguenots who since henry the fourth had passed the edict of nantes had been allowed to worship in their own way there were thousands of Huguenots in the south of France. They were chiefly middle-class and working people. Many of them worked at making things, especially silk, in which France had a great trade with other countries. Cardinal Richelieu had thought that the Huguenots had too much freedom, not in religion, but in governing themselves, and he had taken away many of their privileges. The people of La Rochelle, the great Huguenot town, had defied him, and he had besieged their strong city for fourteen months. At first they were able to get food from ships, which brought it into their beautiful harbor. But Richelieu built dikes right across the harbor, and no more food could be got in. The people, men, women, and children, died in thousands in the streets, and there were very few alive when Richelieu and his king, Louis the Thirteenth, rode into the conquered city. Still, the cardinal did not prevent the Huguenots from worshipping in their own way. La Rochelle had grown rich and happy again when Louis the Fourteenth suddenly said that he would no longer tolerate Protestants in France. The edict of Nantes was revoked, and the freedom it had given taken away. The Huguenot churches were knocked down, and children were taken away from parents who would not promise to bring them up as Catholics. Some of the Huguenots were put to death. Others were sent to work as galley slaves in the French warships. They were chained to their oars so that they could not escape. Many of the Huguenots made up their minds to flee away to Protestant countries, but even this was made very hard for them. The shores of France were watched, 
and so were the chief roads into other countries. Still, many thousands did get away, crossing into Switzerland and Holland and Germany, through forests and over mountains, where the king could not put soldiers to stop them. Often the Huguenots disguised themselves so that no one could tell who they were. One officer and his wife dressed themselves as orange sellers, and travelled with a donkey carrying their oranges. Sometimes people hid themselves in empty barrels, and were carried on to ships sailing for England. So many got away, though some were caught and taken back. Louis the Fourteenth got his way, and soon there was hardly a Protestant left in France, but it was a very bad thing for the country. Many French silk weavers settled down at Spitalfields in London and helped to make English trade better as others did in other countries. Many sailed away to America, finding peace and freedom like the English colonists before them. Others went to settle in the colony which the Dutch had set up at the Cape of Good Hope. All the countries of Europe were full of horror at this persecution of the French Protestants. The Pope himself blamed Louis for it. Only James II, the Catholic brother of Charles II, and now King of England, was pleased. Charles II, England's merry monarch, had always been much loved by the English people, but he had not really been very faithful to them. He had made secret promises to Louis the Fourteenth to try and make England Catholic again, and in return Louis had given him a great deal of money. But Charles II was wise enough to see that he could not really do this. It is said that he died a Catholic himself, but he never really had any hope of making the English Catholic. James II was quite different. He was a very strict Catholic, and though Catholics were forbidden by the English law to help in the government of the country, James took no notice of this, but gave the best positions to Catholics. This made the English people very angry, and when James's queen had a little baby born, they made up their minds to rebel against James, for they knew that the baby would be brought up as a Catholic, and they hated to think that they would have Catholic kings forever. So they rose in revolt against James, who fled to France, where his wife and baby had gone before him. Then the English invited William of Orange, who had married Mary, James the Second's grown-up daughter, to come and rule England with his wife. And so they did. This is called the English Revolution of 1688. William the Third, as he was now called, was a descendant of William the Silent, who had saved the Netherlands from Spain. He was the ruler of Holland, and he was only pleased to become king of England too, because he wanted England to help him to save Holland, this time against the king of France. THE WARS OF LOUIS the Fourteenth. For long before this Louis had been fighting with Holland, for he had made up his mind to join the Netherlands to France, and make the river Rhine the boundary of his country on the north as it was on the east. 
Louis had married a Spanish princess, who was half-sister to Charles II, the boy who soon afterwards became King of Spain. When King Philip IV of Spain, the father of Louis's wife, and of Charles II of Spain, died, Louis said that the Spanish Netherlands ought to belong to him because of his wife, and he immediately attacked them. He had a very fine general called Touraine, and in a short time the French had conquered all the chief towns of the Spanish Netherlands near France. The other countries were very anxious about the balance of power when they saw the French winning town after town, and England, Sweden, and Holland joined in what was called the Triple Alliance to prevent Louis conquering the Netherlands. So Louis stopped fighting for a time, but still he kept the towns he had won. He soon broke up the Triple Alliance. He made a secret treaty with Charles II, and also persuaded Sweden not to help the Dutch, for he had made up his mind now to fight and conquer Holland. Holland had always been a republic, but it had always elected a prince of the House of Orange as its stadtholder, as the ruler was called. The stadtholder was not a king, but a kind of president. Still, as he was always chosen from the House of Orange, that house had become a kind of royal family. There were some people in Holland who did not like this, and wanted not to give very much power to the young William of Orange, who was then growing up. Two brothers called de Witt were looking after the country when Louis the Fourteenth attacked it. The de Witts were brave men, and loved their country, but they had not been wise enough to see the great danger Louis the Fourteenth was going to be. The Dutch navy was fighting the French, and English navy too, and was not conquered. But the Dutch army was not ready and in order. As in the days of William the Silent, the dikes were cut, the land was flooded, and the French driven off. But the people were very angry with the DeWitts. One brother was put in prison, and when the other went to visit him, the two were attacked and killed. William of Orange now had things all his own way. He was a brave soldier and very ambitious. His whole life from this time was given to defending his country, or keeping down the power of France. Yet he was not really a very noble character. He did not try to save the DeWitts, but took no notice, as he did many times afterwards when cruel things were done, which he could have prevented. He was a much more silent man than the William who had been called the Silent. This was partly because of the way he had been brought up. Without father or mother or any near relation, the DeWitts had brought him up alone and always watched. They thought of him as dangerous to the Republic, which they loved, because the House of Orange had become like a royal family. He had begged them to let him have children of his own age to play with, but they would not, and in the end he learned to hide what he felt. He did not smile at good news or cry for bad, and he kept this quiet way till the end of his life. 
Yet when he loved, he loved passionately, and he hated just as passionately. Above all other things, he hated France, and France's king. For six years there was fighting between France and Holland. The French generally won. Someone asked William, Do you not see that your country is lost? There is one way, he answered, never to see it lost, and that is to die in the last ditch. When, in 1678, Louis was forced by the other countries of Europe to make peace, Holland was still free. For ten years after this there was peace, but Louis was always offending someone and trying to steal land on the borders of France. Then came the English Revolution, and William's great chance as King of England to fight Louis once more. Two years afterwards, the Dutch and English fleets won a great victory over the French fleet at La Hogue. This was the end of the greatness of France on the seas. Long after the time of Louis the Fourteenth, France became a danger to Europe under the great Napoleon, but she was never able to get together a really great fleet. But on land Louis still won victories, though William of Orange fought so well that Louis never got any real gain from his victories. At last peace was made again in 1697. William of Orange was given some towns in the north of the Spanish Netherlands, with which he could keep Louis from attacking Holland again. He would much rather have gone on fighting Louis, but by this time the English were rather tired of it. They thought that William was making use of English men and English money to save Holland. But Louis the Fourteenth only made peace each time so as to be able to get ready for war again. And now Louis was very anxiously waiting for the death of Charles the Second of Spain, in order to get as much as he could of the land he ruled. Charles the Second had never been strong, and people had been surprised that he had even lived to be a man. Before he died, Louis and the Austrian emperor, who was also related to the king of Spain, had arranged that one of the emperor's sons should become king of Spain, while Louis was to have all the Spanish possessions in Italy. No one asked the Spanish people what they wished, but when Charles II died they made up their mind that they would not have any king who had been chosen for them, but that they would choose their own. They chose Philip, the young grandson of Louis the Fourteenth. He was only a boy of seventeen. Unless his elder brother died, he would not become king of France, and in any case Louis the Fourteenth had had to promise that he would not join the two countries. Yet, as the young King Philip was going away homesick and crying to his new kingdom, Louis said to him, Remember, there are no longer any Pyrenees. The Pyrenees are the mountains between France and Spain, and Louis meant that after this Spain would always be joined to France and help her in her wars. William of Orange was very anxious indeed, and he wished with all his heart that the English people would once more declare war against France. 
Then Louis did a foolish thing. Poor King James II of England was dying in France, and Louis the Fourteenth promised him that he would do all he could to have his son, the little baby who was born in 1688, made King of England when William of Orange should die. When the English people heard of this, they were very angry, and so at last William got his way, and they gave him men and money to help him to fight Louis once more. But just at this point William died. He had never been very strong, and he had worn himself out. Mary, his queen, was dead already, and so her sister Anne became Queen of England. The son of James the Second never had any chance of becoming King of England, although in the year 1715 he did cross over to Scotland, hoping to win England with the help of the Scottish Highlanders, but failed completely. He lived nearly all his life in Italy, where he married and had children. He was always very sad, and people called him Old Mr. Melancholy. He is generally called the Old Pretender, because his eldest son, Bonnie Prince Charlie, who came to England in the year 1745, just thirty years after his father, to try to win the throne of the Stuarts again, was called the Young Pretender. When William III died, the English soldiers were not left without a great leader. The Duke of Marlborough, who was tutor to Queen Anne's little boy, was placed over the army. He was a wonderful soldier. A great Frenchman said of him that he never besieged a place which he did not take, or fought a battle that he did not win. His soldiers said that the Duke was as calm at the mouth of a cannon as at the door of a drawing-room. His armies loved him, and the sight of his calm, determined face always made his men feel braver. In the year 1704, Marlborough and Prince Eugene of Savoy won a great victory over the French at the Battle of Blenheim near the Danube for Louis the Fourteenth had marched through Germany to attack Vienna, the chief town of Austria. He had an immense army, and would have defeated the army of the emperor, but Prince Eugene, who was with his army in Italy, marched quickly to meet the French, while Marlborough made a more wonderful march still, across Europe from Holland. The great French army was defeated, and half its men killed in the battle. Yet there was fighting for some years after this. At last peace was made in the year 1713. After thirty years of fighting, Louis had gained nothing. His grandson Philip kept Spain, but neither he nor any of his family, who became king after him, could become king of France neither could any French king ever become king of Spain. The Netherlands, for which Louis had fought so hard, were now given up to the House of Austria. Holland remained independent and kept a ring of Netherland towns to keep her safe. The possessions of Spain in Italy were also given to Austria. 
The town of Gibraltar, on the south coast of Spain, remained to England, and the island of Minorca and the French colony of Nova Scotia, or New Scotland, which the French had made in Canada, the part of North America to the north of New England, were also given up to the English. Nova Scotia was only one of the colonies of the French in North America, for there was a new France as well as a new Holland. There had been quarrels before this about Nova Scotia, for the English said it belonged to them, because it was first discovered by Cabot, who was sent out by the English king Henry the Seventh. There were quarrels, too, about it later, but England kept it in the end, and we shall see later how she won all the other French colonies in Canada as well. Louis the Fourteenth died in 1715. He had lost all he had fought for in his great wars. He spent the last two years of his life very miserably. His eldest son and grandson died, which made the old king very sorrowful. He was still as strict a Catholic as ever, and he now persecuted some people called the Jansenists, who were Catholics, but had some peculiar beliefs which seemed like heresy to the king. The convent of Port Royal, near Paris, where some old nuns lived, had been Jansenist for many years, but Louis the Fourteenth asked the nuns to say that they were not Jansenist any longer. They would not do this, and, although they were all old ladies, he sent them off to different convents all over the country. But, in spite of all his faults, Louis the Fourteenth had worked hard for France. L'État, c'est moi. I am the state, he would often say. But, although there was so much vanity in his love for France, he did love her. With all his faults, too, he was in some ways the greatest man of the seventeenth century. His death was the end of a great time in the history of France and the history of Europe. End of chapter 36